This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. One of the many captivating things about archaeology is that it often brings to light so many intriguing aspects of different historical periods at the same time. A thought that was foremost in my mind while chatting with University of Cambridge archaeologist Andrew Wallace Hadrill. Andrew is an international expert on both Herculaneum and Pompeii, two towns in the Bay of Naples which were utterly overwhelmed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD in such a way that today they provide a unique and enormously valuable window into the ancient Roman world. But as Andrew describes it, the 18th century experience of the discovery of these sites provides valuable insights on the attitudes and values of those later cultures as well. 1738 is the beginning of excavations, right. and uh, this, the, the, the real excavations of Herculaneum happen under uh, Carlo, Charles right. Bourbon, Bourbon, the first right. of the Bourbon dynasty, right. um, who, who starts in 1736 and goes yeah. through till 1760, okay. 59. Okay. Um, and that's that's the great period of excavation. He took very strong personal interest in it. Right. Um, so by the 17... And they just explored everywhere. They'd start from the, th- the theatre. But it's a, it's a mining principle. You go down and then you go laterally. And they riddled the site with their tunnels. Absolutely riddled it. And every now and again, they would hit something really spectacular. And in 1750, they hit the Villa of the Papyri and rapidly, you know, whoop, statues are coming out. Right. Um, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful historical irony that Charles Bourbon uh, was the inheritor of the biggest collection of um, ancient statues in Italy, the Farnese collection. Yes. And um, so in his mind, the obvious thing was... Let's find statues. And he was so lucky because where do you find statues? You find them in the theatre, you find them in the public buildings, and you find them gardens. in very big villas right. with, with gardens. Right. And he manages to hit all of them. And this, imagine hitting a villa, if we did it today, with a hundred statues of superb quality in it. <laughs> it's the most incredible find. <laughs> And then, as if that wasn't enough, a unique collection of carbonized papyri. Right. It, it was the most unbelievable bit of luck. Um, 
And, and then, the, given how amazing that find is, the odd thing is that people then lost interest in Herculaneum. Right. And, and there, I blame Winkelmann, who attacked the excavation and the work that was the way it was done and the work it was done and, yeah, yeah. and so forth. Well, this was um, after he had gone back to Spain, presumably, right? This was after yes, Carlos and and gone. and Charles has gone to Spain, right? And Ferdinando is only eight years old when he starts. It's an incredibly <laughs> delicate regime, right. and you know, Tanucci, his prime minister, is trying to hang on to things, and then this damn German <laughs> publishes <laughs> a blast against Herculaneum, and. Oddly enough, the next thing you find is they've shifted their interest to Pompeii, hmm. about which <laughs> Winkelmann had very little to say, because there was nothing to see when he visited. Um, and Herculaneum sort of goes off the radar in a really interesting way. And yet, they'd only just been discovering these amazing things. It's, 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 it's interesting. I want to I get to your uh, background and how you started generally, and I will, yeah. I will get back there. But when I read your book, it was, it was a particularly um, exciting and stimulating experience because so many of my preconceived notions of what Herculaneum was, never having been to the site as I admitted to you earlier, but mm -hmm. now being even more motivated than ever to actually go, but so many of my preconceived notions uh, were shown to, to be false. When I thought of Herculaneum, the reason why Herculaneum was interesting to me was almost solely because of the Villa of Papiri. I mean, that was my sense. It was, I, I thought, wow, there could be all these, we know that so much of, uh, of ancient literature was lost. This could be a place where there's a lot more that we can find. There's, uh, it hasn't been fully explored. There are other possibilities. And so my sense was a one-to-one -one identification with Herculaneum mm -hmm. and the Villa of Papiri. And, 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 and I've learned that, of course, the villa's there, and it's interesting and fascinating stories, but there is so, so much more. Um, I think that's, that's exactly what I want to say. Um, you know, the, the villa ha has still a lot to offer, and all the work done recently on the villa has come up with really interesting results. Right. But it isn't just papyri that you can get out of Herculaneum. I, myself, am particularly interested in the documentary uh, uh, wooden tablets, these uh, where they, they're legal documents where you have a, uh, have a, a document in triplicate all tied together right. and inscribed inside and with an ink version on the outside. And um, the, I think is eight different bundles of these documents have been found in Herculaneum. And it's absolutely certain that if you do more excavation, you will find more of, of these things. They're incredibly hard to read, mm. um, but they're a, 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 a whole sight easier to read than the papyri. Sure. <laughs> because, you know, at least they were flat, right. not all rolled up. <laughs> and, and the papyri are, a, are an extraordinary challenge to read. Right. And the reward, the level of reward you get out of these um, legal documents to me as a Roman historian, is right. much, much higher than what we've got out of the papyri. Right. N not that um, Greek philosophy is of no interest. Of course, it's, it's fascinating. But uh, you, you've got an insight into how Roman business life worked, right. which is 
so precious. You know, we, 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 we have the lawyers, we have lots of comments on, on, on how the law ought to be working when they give their own little case studies. But actually to see it in action on the ground, right. real people uh, using the Roman legal system, you suddenly un understand that the Roman legal system matters to ordinary people. In a very profound way. And and absolutely and engaged with it. And of course there is an argument that lawyers become much, much more interesting after they've been dead for 2,000 years. <laughs> so, but perhaps I shouldn't go there. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 another thing, uh, so I, I do want to get uh, in this whole section, mm. I want to have a, a deeper understanding mm. of, of what we found and how we can interpret these results mm. and the, society, the Roman society that, that you've been able to, to understand in a deeper way and what's mm. been shed light on. But I do, I do want to just talk at the very, very beginning about, again, some of my misconceptions. So mm -hmm. one misconception that I had was this notion of the Villa of yeah. Papiri and that yeah. that was really all there was. And that's clearly false. Um, another misconception that I had was something that you mentioned, um, again, in your book, which was how the volcanic eruption actually happened. So mm -hmm. I don't know how I picked this up, but somehow I had this sense that there was this slow-moving mud that, that, that yeah. came through. And you mentioned Charles Waldstein and, and his, his invocation of, of, of this. And so I, I didn't completely hallucinate this. This was some, somewhere uh, out in the public consciousness that this was actually what had happened to Herculaneum. And, and in the very, very beginning of your book, you talk about the, 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 the clear and detailed interplay between archaeology and geology and what we understand about the geologic processes and how mm. different that uh, what actually happened was, how we're certain and how different what actually happened was what rather uh, was from this notion of this slow moving mud that somehow buried the city. Um, and that was just a fascinating story for me. Uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that, uh, that, that actually just awes me about uh, engaging with the process of archaeological research is how you need to draw on all disciplines and particularly on scientific disciplines and it's it's no good someone who's a historian by training trying to understand how a volcanic eruption works you need a volcanologist yeah. and fascinatingly Volcanologists have been very engaged with this really well-preserved evidence of a past eruption. And so it's from the early 80s that our understanding of, of how the eruption has been transformed. And fascinatingly, that idea that Herculaneum's uh, overwhelmed with a mud flow remains so ingrained mm. in the literature mm. that people, uh, most Italians, uh, refer to the rock that covers the site as fango, mud. Mm. And I always say, well, at least it's a two-syllabled word, fango, rather than consolidated pyroclastic flow. <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you can't give all that lot. And, 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 and then, very irritatingly, uh, the, more technically, the, the rock is tufo. Yeah. And I have to say it, with an Italian accent, because in English it's frequently described as tufa, which is actually technically a completely different rock from tufa. Oh, okay. uh, Americans call it tough. Well, of course um, they would, yeah. Uh, and and, and they, then that's a problem for the Brits, of course. We right. can't go around calling this stuff tough. Right. <laughs> it's not our word. <laughs> uh, so, so, so fango mud kind of sticks in the popular imagination. Yes. But um, it's completely wrong. 
And it, it's, it's spectacularly wrong, <laughs> because <laughs> what, what, what matters is not wetness and slowness. What matters is intense heat, these sort of really hot gases swirling around, dense with ash. Um, and without the heat, you don't get the carbonization of organic materials. Um, interestingly, you do also get waterlogging. Um, and yes. one of the most exciting finds we made was down on the ancient shoreline where there was a whole heap of wood and the top layers were carbonized. The bottom layers that were actually on the shore in the wetness of the sea were waterlogged and not carbonized. So you do get right. um, waterlogging, but it is a completely different process right. from being overwhelmed in very hot gases um, and being carbonized. And these geological processes uh, that, are, that are so well known now that you describe are so different when one looks at, at Pompeii and when one, when one looks at Herculaneum in terms of what happened. And that has such wide ramifications mm. for what was preserved and what wasn't preserved. And so these, th there, is this, there is this wonderful interplay with geological mm. science and archaeology and mm. history. So many disciplines talk about interdisciplinarity and they wave mm. their arms and there's this sense you get a biologist and a, and a chemist and, and, a, and an anthropologist in a room and wonderful things will necessarily happen. And most of the times it, it doesn't if mm. you try to do that. But here there's this what I would call necessary interdisciplinarity. Mm. There, there's, this, there's this wonderful sense of these things being so closely linked. I think we're very lucky to have had Harold S. Sigurdsson, who was the, the uh, along with a group of colleagues, but he is the figure who really puzzled this out. And he is so clear in explaining the differences between what happens in Pompeii and Herculaneum that even a non-scientist can grasp it. Um, and, and his diagrams show it very well. Um, and what, what, what you kind of don't expect is that the same volcanic eruption produces dramatically different effects right. um, within 10 miles of each other. Right, right. Um, and then, of course, uh, when you think about it a bit, a bit more on the awesome process of, of material coming up from miles underground and exploding and coming down, you can see that, that, uh, that it's a fantastically variegated process. But also how and, powerful and it is. I mean, you, you mentioned this. This is something I didn't know. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not a volcanologist. Mm. But I, okay, I know what a volcano is, big eruption, and lots of stuff coming out. 27 to 33 kilometers high this plume was when it, when, when it first came out. And you mentioned the power of a, a roughly equivalent to atomic bombs exploding every three seconds or something like that. I mean, just in 27 to 33 kilometers, this pine tree, as Pliny was calling it, as yeah. it was, it was right. That's, 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 uh, that's, uh, that's remarkable. It is. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> awesome and very humbling. And, 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 and one of the things I, uh, I do is uh, I do a little calculation of how... If, if humans would tr try to shift the amount of material that the volcano shifted in the course of 24 hours, how much effort would it be? And the calculation I came up with was that it would, if you take the biggest truck <laughs> on the market, which apparently takes about 20 cubic uh, meters of material, you would need 450 million of them to shift <laughs> that amount of material. In 24 hours. <laughs> In 24 hours. <laughs> and you suddenly know, you know, 
um, nature works on a very different <laughs> scale. From how, however much damage we inflict on this planet, it is as nothing compared to natural phenomena. But you, then I'm, I'm fascinated by this figure, um, uh, Seneca, who's famous uh, as a philosopher, a literary figure, uh, who was advisor to the emperor uh, Nero. One of the, the, the very interesting pieces he wrote, which is little read by classicists because it's work on science, yeah. is his natural questions, where he asks the explanation for various right. natural phenomena, including earthquakes. Right. And uh, he has got a very clear picture of the awesome power of nature. Right. Uh, and he draws this sort of um, perversely wrong conclusion mm. uh, in saying it's, it's no good running away after an earthquake because, frankly, earthquakes can strike virtually anywhere. This was after the big earthquake in 63 uh, or whatever, exactly. right? So. Um, and, and, and he's right. Um, in my lifetime, there have been earthquakes up and down the Italian peninsula. It is very, very subject to earthquakes. And it's no good running away from Assisi to L'Aquila if yeah. you're then going to find there's an earthquake in L'Aquila. Yeah. So Seneca was right that the danger of earthquakes was not confined to that volcanic area because volcanic activity is spread up and down the Italian peninsula. But then you go on to say, in your, and this was also fascinating for me, for someone who, who has a scientific interest as well, because you, you piece together you, you reconstruct a geological argument when you're actually measuring the level of uh, the sea rise and fall as mm -hmm. it comes back and forth. And anybody who is a modern-day geologist would know that there's concrete evidence that the sea, because you, you, you've actually looked at the site and you can see where the sea has risen over the span of two centuries or, or, mm. or a century and a half or something like that, and that's a very bad sign. Mm. that the sea is going back and forth, it's a sign of the earth buckling or, or what have mm. you, and actually giving, if you were a, a, a geologist in Seneca's day, knowing what we know now, you might be tempted to say, well, hang on a minute, actually. It's not just the fact that we've had this earthquake which is happening, but we've been able to watch the yeah. sea going back yeah. and forth, so maybe uh, it's, it's not just a random thing that bad things can happen everywhere. There's something brewing in, in this neighborhood yeah. that you should actually be aware but, of. But do you know, one of the extraordinary things is our inability, our ongoing inability to predict. Right. Uh, earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. Right. Although there is an enormous scientific industry working on it, although Italian civil protection has got a whole department of really high quality scientists sure. trying to work out, they actually imprison scientists for their failure to predict the scale of the earthquake at L'Aquila. They, yes, well. Uh, and and, and, and <laughs> there's no way that those scientists were just being bad scientists. It's unbelievably difficult sure. to predict. But uh, I have, didn't imprison uh, Berlusconi for that. I <laughs> <laughs> that would have been more satisfactory. <laughs> but <laughs> he's the Teflon Don. <laughs> he gets away with everything. Um, but, but I have to say that one of, for me, one of the most exciting moments of our project has been when the geologist Aldo Cinque, who, who was the colleague we brought in to look at uh, these things, as he was gradually teasing out the implications of what was happening down by the shoreline. And 
you know, he picked up all these little bits of evidence and he was always terribly excited about it and would say, look, look, there you've got, you've got some sand under the building, um, but the sand is, is sitting on top of the traces of a quarry. Right. Um, and, and, and he did also, uh, he, more recently, he's done a series of core samples, Karotaji, taking, drilling down a core about that, uh, about, um, what is that, 10 centimeters wide. Um, and uh, they've had to go down as much as 30 meters to hit the ancient sea level. Wow. And gradually, we are reconstructing a picture of the ancient coastline um, around Herculaneum. Um, And one of the things that he points out is that in the 18th century, they made similar calculations on the basis of looking at wells. When people sink wells, what is the stratigraphy of of a well? And they worked out a surprising amount correctly about the ancient shoreline from looking at wells. So, uh, you know, the, the evidence, the evidence is there, is, is there but it, it needs um, the experience and knowledge of a scientist to interpret it. Right. One, one, one last thing before I turn to uh, your involvement uh, as an archaeologist and in Herculaneum mm-hmm. and in Pompeii. Um, there's something else that you, again, that you mentioned that I hadn't thought of. I was naively under the view, insofar as I had thought about it at all, that Herculaneum was a completely lost city. It was a completely lost city to everyone, and then yes, sometime in the, in the 18th century, uh, I'm not sure if I was aware of mm. the, the, the Bourbon influence or whatever, but at some point in the 18th century, uh, 18th century somebody said, oh look, there's, there's, there's a city here, and this came as complete news. And, and, and at some level that always struck me as, as somewhat specious. I mean, how mm. could something be completely lost, completely to everyone so suddenly? Maybe it could be, maybe it couldn't be, but but in your book, you, you, you have all sorts of links between, between politics and archaeology. And you talk mm. about this idea that, uh, yes, we have actually uh, data of previous people who were exploring the site. And we can tell from not only the, the, the fact that there are other tunnels, but they backfilled their tunnels. And we've actually been able to look at the samples through that. So over the ages, there have been quite a few people who have actually gone through. And there's a, there's a rigorous dating process of that. And then you make an, an additional um, speculation, at least, if not claim, that there were people who clearly knew about this. And for reasons for political reasons, such as it didn't fit in well with the prevailing philosophy at the time, be it the Inquisition or something else, they, they were reticent to actually come mm. forward and say it. So there is, this, there is this sense that it's not quite as clear-cut as nobody knew about it, and then everybody said, hey, there's this lost city. Mm. There, it was much more subtle than that, and over the centuries, quite a few people were aware of actually what had happened, and for various reasons, elected not to say anything at all. Mm. There are various strands to this argument. Um, and it's an argument which, which, which I've put together over the course of time after moments of revelation, so to speak. Mm. Uh, and one really important moment was when my principal archaeological colleague on, on the project, uh, Mimo Camardo, who is actually trained as a medieval archaeologist, not as a classical archaeologist, and he was clearing in one particular area, and he became very excited because he'd recognized some 13th century pottery. 
And it takes a trained medieval archaeologist to spot 13th century pottery. Right. And he instantly saw the implications. Right. And, uh, and he drew attention to other bits of evidence uh, that uh, people were aware. Uh, not that Herculaneum was there, but that there was an ancient city down below. Right. Uh, and in fact, then when you look into the earlier literature, you find that there are antiquarians who speculate, yes, Herculaneum uh, must be here. But the second moment of revelation for me was when I was visiting uh, Pozzuoli, which is on the north of the Bay of Naples, and uh, that suffered from dreadful earthquakes in 1980, and the whole historic center of Pozzuoli had to be abandoned. It was in such really? a terrible condition, yeah. and it remains. This, this little area called Rione Terra is, is um, it, it, it's, it's, it's sealed off. It's a museum, yeah. but it's not for people to live in. And there's a wonderful um, uh, cathedral there, which is built in the remains of an ancient temple. And you mm -hmm. can see the columns of the temple. And the earthquake actually helped us because it shook, <laughs> shook down a lot of the Baroque decoration <laughs> and made the, the Roman columns smile through. Uh, so it's a really fascinating site. And it, it, after the earthquake, it became possible to do excavations. And it emerged that there is uh, um, a 17th century city built on top of the abandoned and backfilled remains of the earlier medieval back to hmm. ancient city. And one thing that the excavators noticed, they found, um, not particularly surprisingly, they found quite a lot of statues. Of course, Putelli was a, a major Roman city and there were, of course there were loads of statues there. Hmm. But the odd thing that they spotted was that the statues had been deliberately abandoned there in the process of backfilling the site in order to build the new city on top. That is to say, the people who backfilled it knew that they were throwing away ancient statues. And I was really struck by that because then I thought, ah, oh, the interesting question is not just why do people excavate and look for the past? But when do they not want to find the past? Right. And then I put that together with the well-known fact that at the end of the 16th century, in the 1590s, um, a major architect called Domenico Fontana dug a big canal um, to bring water from, from the mountains behind through to the area of uh, Torre Annunziata, which is just by Pompeii. And he sent his canal right through the ruins of Pompeii. Artemis. It, 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 you know, constructing a canal is no minor right. engineering work. And it, it, he, he, with absolute clarity, and we, we can see the canal going through the site, and it cuts a very impressive sort of section through the southern part of the city. Um, there is no way he didn't know he was finding Pompeii. And yet, nothing was said about it. Mm. And that's, it's in the same sort of time frame as the people who actually bury ancient statues rather than dig them up. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, the obvious guess is in the times of the Inquisition, 
you really don't want to find pagan antiquity. Yeah. The, the difficulty there is at the same period in Rome, they were finding pagan antiquity, like the Laocoon group seen yeah. by Michelangelo. So um, it may be in, in the South, in the Spanish dominated South, A different they, atmosphere. They, they, they were more against paganism and didn't want, but for whatever reason, they found Pompeii, they found Herculaneum and, and didn't want to know about it. And that to me is as fascinating as the people who did want to know about <laughs> it. And suddenly you see, okay, you've got to explain why they want it. It's not obvious that right. people want to discover the past. They want to discover the past because it, it's, it's useful to them. It's relevant in some way. And ways. then yeah. the, to me, the other important argument is that the very same motivation that leads the Bourbon dynasty in the early 18th century to discover what was plainly discoverable feeds through to the modern tourist industry of today. Yes. That's to say, he wants to bring people. It's a magnet. You're creating a tourist magnet. Right. Of course, it's a different kind of tourism at the beginning and so on. No, but the principles but are the same. The principles are absolute, and there is a continuity. And part of the enormous fame and success of Pompeii is that its reputation has gradually been built by this very slow process of discovery and more excitement and, and more fiction built around it. Right. Uh, and until it enters not just the European imagination, but the global imagination. Well, see yes. Naples and die, you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, that, that's really where it, where it comes from, right? I'm, yeah. uh, this, this notion that, that presumably, it, maybe it should have been see Herculaneum and Pompeii and die, or <laughs> whatever. But, but there was this sense that th these are such immeasurably beautiful and important works that one's life can't be complete unless one, one somehow partakes of them. Uh, it is also the case that the, the Bay of Naples, in terms of natural beauty, is so right. extraordinarily stunning that even without the work of man, right. <laughs> it's, it's worth going there to get the view. And, th and that to me is an important thing about Herculaneum. It's a site, it's a city, which had the sort of front row seat on the Bay of Naples, this spectacular view. That's terribly important for how the site develops in the Roman period. So how did it, now let me ask my long delayed question, okay. which is the, the okay. biographical aspect of, okay. of things. How did you become involved in Herculaneum and Pompeii? And perhaps before that, how did, how did you become involved in, in, in this sort of archeology? span mm. uh, the, the answer is actually a surprisingly simple one. It goes back to my teens, probably when I was about 15, uh, and I started to get really interested in Roman history. Um, and I, I began to form the ambition to be a Roman historian. And my, my dad, who was a medieval historian, said, well, if you're interested in this stuff, I better take you to Italy. And we had a family holiday in Rome and Sorrento. Mm. And so for two weeks, I had my first um, views of Rome, my first visits to Pompeii, Herculaneum, the museum in Naples, uh, and, and Pistum, so much else on, on the Bay of Naples. It made a, 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 a deep impression. Um, I then returned as an undergraduate. I did a paper um, on, on 
Pompeian art as, as part of my undergraduate course. Uh, so that those things became really important for me. They didn't become part of the focus of my research until I'd finished my doctorate. My doctorate was actually about um, Suetonius' Lives of Emperors. Oh, really? So, um, so, so it was a completely non-archaeological hmm. subject. Right. Uh, but one of the conclusions I reached um, studying Suetonius is that what you get out of him is a picture not just of not, not just the stories of individual emperors, but a picture of Roman society and culture, how they fit in and affect uh, the culture of their times. Uh, and that led me on to wanting to write a book about Roman society and culture at that, that period. And at that stage, um, Pompey and Herculaneum were already familiar to me, I said, uh, well, it would be really good to build in archaeological evidence at, at this point. I and I started reading around what had been written. And I was absolutely horrified that the literature uh, was obsessed with uh, Roman wall painting, the mm. different styles of Roman wall painting, or what, what precise dating each style, that there seemed to be no interest in the house as an architectural unit, yeah. let alone as a social unit. <laughs> and that, 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 that here you've got this wonderful source that tells you not just about the elite, though it also tells you about the elite, but by definition it tells you something about the entire society. Yes. You've got to have the entire society preserved in the archaeological remains of a city. Um, and that's the very part that you're least confident that literature will get you into. Indeed. So I thought, well, I mean, we, let's do some serious research. I did a lot of statistical analysis. What, what are the differences between that, the houses you can reasonably attribute to the elite and going down the, the, the social scale. What, what I was enormously struck by was the continuity, that there is an imitation at lower levels of, of the language. Uh, you take a little example, it's one of the most beautiful villas um, just outside Pompeii, at a place called Aplontis, um, has on its walls lovely little decorative birds on, on the corridors. And you can find exactly the same sort of birds in little shops and workshops in mm. Pompeii. Yeah. Not so beautifully executed, but, you know, right. it's the same. And I thought, okay, you've actually got a continuity of culture in the society. You haven't got an enormous gap between an educated elite right. and the others who live in misery. There's a really important middle ground. Uh, and there's a really so important spectrum. It's a real yeah. continuum. Yeah, a continuum. Um, and, that's, and that was the subject of my first Pompeii and Herculaneum book, um, Houses and Society. Uh, and I, I was absolutely astonished that how little work had been done on that. Um, uh, th things have changed since then an enormous amount. I'm now completely out of date on the literature <laughs> because it, it, it gushes out now. Um, uh, so that, I think that's what got me into serious work on research, not just 
reading about Pompeii or not just uh, visiting. But then the next crucial step was my move to Rome. It was an extraordinary opportunity to be made director of the British School at Rome. It required me to research in Italy. And the most obvious thing in the world was to develop projects in the places I had studied most. Right. And, and so uh, in terms of archaeological exploration, I took it up a level, first with a project in Pompeii and then with a project in, in Herculaneum. Um, and um, I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that opportunity of living in Italy um, because unless you spend real time on these sites, you, you can't get deep into them. How long were you there for? 14 years. 14 years. So I, I want to get to this, back to this idea of, of this continuum between different strata of society. Mm -hmm. um, because in your book, you also mention not only intellectual continuum, <clears throat> which you just referred to in terms of the birds and what people might find mm -hmm. uh, interesting to have on their walls or interesting to think about or, or beautiful or what have you. There's also a physical continuum. There's also this sense that we, we might naively imagine, well, there were rich people and there were poor people and the rich people were in gated communities, as it were, right? Yeah. I mean, which we have, of course, quite a bit of now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there was a sense of the rich people fencing themselves off from the poor. But because the society was the way that it was, and because you had slaves and you had freed slaves and you had all of these people that, uh, uh, that were so integrally part of a wealthy person's uh, abode and a wealthy person's lifestyle, that, that there was a lot of this cheek by jowl nature. People weren't sealed mm. off in their, physically in their own little worlds, which I found actually quite fascinating. That, that's absolutely right. Um, I remember at, at an early stage of my research on, on Pompeii and Herculaneum, um, I, 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 I tried the very sort of simple technique of measuring the, the plot sizes of these various different units um, and coloring them according to, to plot size. Right. Um, and, and, and what you get in a block of houses in Pompeii or Herculaneum is, you know, the full color range, everything from the biggest to right. the, 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 the smallest and everything in between. Um, and, it's a very vivid picture. And I remember showing a slide of, of that in a talk to some school kids. And in, in the questions, one kid who obviously came from a very comfortable background asked me, but did the Romans, were they really prepared to live cheek by jowl with <laughs> much poorer people? <laughs> And I, I, I blessed them for exposing their own social prejudices <laughs> so explicitly. And I thought, thank you. You, 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 you've really helped me here because that is what really is striking. Right. That that a Roman would never have asked me that question. Right. Why doesn't a Roman even think that it might be odd uh, to, to have much poorer people living in the same block? And one answer is in the, 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 the nature of Roman ownership. You may, owning the, the block or a part of the block, own a little shop. And you may actually get someone who is a dependent in some sense, typically uh, an ex-slave, to run that little shop for right. you. If you've got relationships of dependence, that mean within a household, the rich of necessity 
lives cheek by jowl, not only with slaves, but ex-slaves of people. Eh? Then on the ground, you find the same mixture. And it is utterly unlike uh, a modern world, let alone a gated community. And then as I, I, I pursued that issue further, uh, I was very struck by how very much that separate segregation is a phenomenon of the industrial world. Mm. It, it's not really until the 19th century that that kind of segregation kicks in. There's a really interesting study of, of New York uh, based on the archaeology of, of old, old New York. This isn't Roman New York. This is, uh, this is not <laughs> Roman New York. Alas, the Romans <laughs> never made it to New York. <laughs> the Vikings did, the Romans didn't. Um, but uh, it, it, it was looking at traces of houses from the 18th century and the 19th century in New York, their pottery and so on and also comparing it to, to lists of where people lived. And there's an enormous change that happens in New York from living at, in the place of work to separating out. So you have an area of shops and then a residential area, right. which has enormous implications for gender differences. Because suddenly the women, instead of being there in the place of work, are separate in their residential places with different kinds of pottery with which they're entertaining to tea the, the other women. Right. So, and you, you get this big sea change in society uh, that results from the separation of place of work and place of residence. Um, and, and so actually the Roman world is part, a distinctive part, but part of an older world which we've most definitely um, lost the understanding of. So perhaps it's an exaggerated form of this integration of, if you will, of, of place of work and, and, uh, and place of residence. I mean, it was a place where these things were so inextricably uh, tied together, mm -hmm. so in, inextricably um, yeah. linked. And then that, that was a very important part of the, the argument of my, of my first book on Pompeii and Herculaneum, where I, I, I tried to show that you can't simply separate public and private because public life or external life necessarily enters into the private house because it's a place of work, but it's also a place of political work, of reception, of, right. of forming social ties and right. so on. And that again makes it um, so unimaginably different from how a modern house is contoured. There's also this whole notion that, that, that seems to be all pervading throughout Herculaneum and perhaps the entire Roman world, which is the role of the freed slave. Mm -hmm. And again, that's something that I was completely uh, unfamiliar with. I knew that there were slaves who were freed uh, from time to time. And, and I had assumed that, that if one was a freed slave, this, uh, clearly this puts one on a, on a better social footing than a, mm -hmm. than a slave. But there would always be this sense of, um, the sense of discrimination, this inability to rise throughout the society, this inability to gain real wealth and so forth. Not so, not so, uh, according to what, what, what you've written. And, and, and there seems to be a very, very strong social role uh, uh, for, for freed slaves, and, and Herculaneum in particular. 
And, and in fact, many of them seemed to be very, very powerful, very socially powerful, very wealthy. And this, again, was a, was a, came as a complete shock to me. I think there are two big issues here of number and of integration. And number is still, it's, it's, it's an enormous puzzle. Because if we follow the evidence, the evidence of gravestones, uh, the evidence of lists of names, um, and so on, Friedman seemed to form an improbably large portion of the population. It's almost as if people have given up having children and have slaves instead and reproduce through giving freedom to slaves. Now, evidently it isn't. It, it can't be sure. quite that much, sure. but there is in a sense in which uh, slavery in the family substitutes for children. It's much mm. easier to have fewer children if, um, if, or if the work is going to be done by slaves and, um, uh, and then in a, a relationship of trust by ex-slaves. Um, there's no doubt that a certain stain attached always to slavery. An ex-slave was always an ex-slave. People didn't forget. And ex-slaves were excluded from certain areas of public life. They could never hold magistracies and so on. But sure, they could make money. And they're evidently deeply involved, and there's, there's abundant evidence of this, deeply involved in business on the, on the Bay of Naples. And if you make a lot of money, of course you carry weight in a society. Right. And the interesting thing is how you deal with that dissonance between the wealth and the inability to participate fully in a politically organized society. You can't be a magistrate. If you, we were talking earlier about the way that bundles of, of legal documents uh, show the engagement of, of the, 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 the population of a town in legal processes. Right. Now, the people who give judgment, the magistrates, are a class apart, and the freedmen can never be part of that. So you'll always find their names um, engaging in lawsuits, acting as witnesses, so on and so forth but you'll never find them giving judgment. So there is something from which they're excluded, sure. but there is at the same time the social power which wealth brings. And uh, in my view, this is part of what the archaeological evidence is showing you, how they could use those things which were accessible to them, well, which are a lot of the things them. that are archaeologically visible. It's much mm. easier to see. Uh, a house with a beautiful marble floor uh, than the fact that someone's a magistrate. Right. <laughs> and, and the old interpretation tended to be the moment you see a beautiful marble floor, it must be a member of the elite, it must be a magistrate. Uh uh. <laughs> the really interesting thing is you can't tell because the ex slave who's, who's made good has the same power right. to, to Financial decorate power. He's able to, he's decorate able to replicate these, these, these figures of stature and, yeah. and class and so forth. You also mentioned this, this college of the Augustalis. I don't know if I'm pronouncing mm. this correctly. Yeah, right. But that most, most of these people, this was a separate club, it seemed, to some extent, and, and the, the majority of them were composed of, of ex-slaves. 
Is that, am I right? With that's the, that's with correct. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenon. It's clearly connected with the cult of Augustus and what was called the divine household, the Domus Divina. So not just Augustus, but his wife and his children uh, and relatives are all part of uh, a, a quasi-divine grouping that deserves cult. But at the same time, Roman citizens did not worship other Roman citizens as if they were gods. That goes, citizenship is all about some sort of equality. Mm. A citizen does not worship another citizen. That's the great paradox in it. The people who actually can worship citizens are ex-slaves. Because, oh, that's different, that's different. So it... It's not quite clear how, but it becomes institutionalized that you can get these bodies of people who are typically ex-slaves, not exclusively, um, but typically ex-slaves, who are responsible for the cult of the Domus Divina. Uh, and to, to belong to that group is clearly a, a social privilege. And one of the, the signs of that privilege you get is, is that when there's a big public feast, and one of the ways of buying credit, um, political and social credit, in, in an ancient city was you give a public feast. Right. You give it very hierarchically. So the decurions, the members of the town council, they're the real elite, the magistrates and ex-magistrates. They get the best portions. But after them, the augustales. I see. The ex-slaves, they benefit from public feasts. These are the ones with good marble patterns on their floor, presumably. Exactly. (laughs) And then you get the plebs who who get the smallest portions, uh, if they get anything at all. You may have money handouts where there's the same sort of uh, hierarchical distinctions. So it it is evident that there there were ways of giving social respectability to people who, in theory, could never be socially respectable. Um, and I guess a Roman would stop me at that point and say, hang on a moment, we don't just classify people by whether they've been a slave or not. What we care about is moral uh, qualities. Are you a good person or are you a bad person is much more important than are you a slave or an ex-slave. And you'll find Seneca saying things like that. A good slave who becomes a good ex-slave is a better Roman than a bad Freemoran person. <clears throat> what Rome, being Roman is all about is virtue. Right. I'd like to compare Pompeii and Herculaneum a little bit. Yeah. Um, not only because you're you're expert in both, but also because you've written quite suggestively that uh, you use a visual metaphor that the two are like two eyes to give you a, a, a deeper perspective, some real depth on Roman society, mm. and that you, uh, you really should be looking at both of them synoptically, both of them together, to be able to, 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 to get some deeper understanding. And again, I, uh, I had some misconceptions, which I, which I think are, are perhaps worth mentioning, because presumably there are mm-hmm. other people who also have said mm-hmm. misconceptions, although granted I seem to have quite a few. Um, <laughs> no, I think but, <laughs> you, you, you're just very honest about exposing. <laughs> um, so 
Pompeii is a much bigger city than, mm -hmm. than, than Herculaneum. And there, I had these ideas that Herculaneum was, was a small town. It was a wealthy seaside resort. It was, it, it was for, the, for, the, for the upper classes, whereas Pompeii was uh, a place where you would have lots of sex and lots of violence that would be everywhere. And it was for these vulgar people. Mm. And, and you, you point out in your book that, uh, that there are certainly, you certainly do see lots of evidence for more sexually suggestive graffiti, and you see lots of evidence for, for gladiatorial games and, and all the rest of this in Pompeii. And so there are aspects of this, and I'll turn it over to you and let the mm -hmm. authority actually talk in a moment. But um, there, there are two things uh, which I certainly wasn't expecting, so which struck me. One is that you make a political distinction between the types of political graffiti that you find in Pompeii that you don't find in, in, in Herculaneum and what that may or may not mean. And so they're, they're real. Um, there's an example of a, of a deeper way of understanding Roman politics and, or Roman era politics and society that one might never have, have thought about. And the other is that you, you talk about the quality, the literary quality of the graffiti. And you say, well, it's true that they have there's much more vulgarity and so forth in Pompeii, you see a much higher, you see many more examples of a much higher literary style of graffiti in Pompeii that you do in Herculaneum. And so it's not true just to say, well, these are all the, the educated, cultivated, literate people live in Herculaneum as opposed to all those vulgar, tawdry masses that mm. live in Pompeii. That's a specious distinction at best, uh, if not just, just outright wrong. One of, one of the one of the permanent dif difficulties in archaeology is understanding whether a contrast that you see is a real contrast or the result of what you, the, the, the small sample that you happen to have excavated. Mm. And is Herculaneum really different from Pompeii or might we excavate a different Herculaneum, which would make it much more like Pompeii? So you're just picking and, a statistically significant yeah. sample. And right? you, could, you could say, well, as it happens, the bit of Herculaneum we have excavated is the bit down towards the sea. And naturally, the rich wanted the houses with the sea views, and they dominate our impression hmm. of, of the town. On the other hand, if you took away the great brothel from Pompeii, that picture of Pompeii as the city of sin would almost collapse on you. The percentage of sexual graffiti that are concentrated in that brothel, <laughs> the, the, the number of obscene images that are... Uh, now, just suppose that Herculaneum had a brothel that is just off the edge of the excavations, we don't happen to have excavated it. And I'm always really cautious in saying, because we haven't found um, a whole slew of obscene paintings and, and, and graffiti in hmm. Herculaneum, that means that th there was no brothel, no prostitution, and they were much more upmarket. That's very dangerous territory. And there's already a big exception in, in, in Herculaneum, which is the suburban baths. And there's just one room in the suburban baths which has obscene graffiti in it. And it's... Uh, as it happens, it's a, a room that can no longer be accessed unless you, you 
you crawl with great difficulty and danger through a sort of window opening. But it has this wall that is completely covered in wonderfully explicit graffiti, that particularly recounting the, uh, uh, the adventures of a pair of slaves or ex-slaves in the imperial service who'd been down to Herculaneum and had had a wonderful orgy with a couple of girls um, and, 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 and sort of give the details of this. And so suddenly the sex is back again right. because you've got that one little space. So it's terribly dangerous in my view. If it, Suppose you were to choose your bit of Pompeii and excavate the bit that ran along the walls of Pompeii, you would find very grand houses there and you might get an impression of a much more upmarket Pompeii. Right. Um, the great thing about Pompeii is the excavations are so extensive, you've got an enormous range of stuff there. So I say all that as a sort of caution, never assume because it isn't there that it wasn't there in antiquity. Um, but the sites do have a different feel. Uh, 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 again and again, they seem to be not quite the same. Very interesting example is, is the decoration of the walls. Yeah. It belongs to the same family, the stuff that's being done in Herculaneum, but it's terribly distinctive. Uh -huh. There were local, local worship. Well, uh, very, one distinctive form is a sort of a blue background with um, uh, columns and so on, picked out in monochrome browns, sort of browny, creamy colours, um, okay. picking out details of these thin columns. Now, that idiom of a field divided by architecture is very much the Pompeian idiom. Right. But that way of using a blue or a black background pretty flat background and then these details picked out in monochrome it's very specific yeah. to Herculaneum. Yeah. So they did things, of course they did things differently sure. there. Not necessarily because they were a different social class, but because they drew on a different set of workshops. Sure. And I, to me, that's why the, that image of the two eyes that are quite close together, they're very, they're very similar to each other, but they have slightly different perspectives. And the great danger with Pompeii is you take it as a universal model for a Roman town. And it's you really helpful to see. No, no, just move <laughs> 10, miles, <laughs> Ten <away. laughs> miles around the bay. And things are not exactly the same, right. but in some respects they are. In some respects, they aren't. And that, that, that's already enormously valuable. And also, I mean, I, 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 the point I wanted to make is I, 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 became, I become plagued by people who want me to say that Herculaneum is better than Pompeii. Um, and, and, who, who, and sometimes you've been plagued I'm, by these people? Who, who, who wants sometimes, you to say, who's desperate to have you they, say? They want to egg me on oh. to say. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, I am happy to say Herculaneum is much better than Pompeii, but it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> the two are absolutely great. Herculaneum gives you specific things much better than Pompeii. Pompeii gives you other things. Sure. That, uh, uh, if you want a picture of Roman public life, of, of a forum, um, of, of the amphitheatre, um, uh, um, if the world of trade, again, you, you see better in, in, in Pompeii. 
So some things are better on one side, some, and you need the two of them to, to supplement, reinforce, um, comment on yeah. each other. You also mentioned that, that because of the nature of the geological eruption mm. and because of the difference in, in the way that these were buried, not only the extent to which they were buried uh, by the 450 mm. million trucks mm. and so forth, yeah. supposed to, um, but also the actual material, yeah. uh, the way in which the skeletons were uh, occurred or were preserved, uh, this yeah. pugilistic pose and so forth, but, but perhaps even, even more significant than that, the, the notion that you actually have a second story that's preserved in Herculaneum and you just don't have that in Pompeii and so you're able to get a much clearer sense of, of the way people lived and, and the physical structures mm. than, than, than you do in, in, in Pompeii. I, I have to say, having uh, spent long working on Pompeii too, um, one of the things that used to drive me crazy was trying to understand the upper floors. That you could see the evidence. You can see the bottom of a staircase going upstairs. You know that they've got right. an upper floor. Right. You can see the downpipe from the latrine upstairs coming down. You know it's there, but it's gone. Right. Because on the whole, Pompeii is preserved to, let's call it five meters, four, five meters, whereas the depth of cover in Herculaneum is a minimum of 12 meters, going to the greatest depth up to 25 meters. Uh, and that's what enables second floors to survive. And you then, it's, it's in Herculaneum that you understand just how important those upper floors were. And it also gives a picture, to go back to a, thing we were discussing earlier of the relationship but of the complexity of what makes up a household because right. you right. can have exactly. tenants in a house right. you can have the upper floors inhabited by completely different people right. and because they're completely different people they need their own smart dining room and uh, they need their own uh, kitchen and latrine and so on you can actually see these things in Herculaneum you have to uh, posit them in, in Pompeii. You, we know there's something going on, but we can't quite understand how important it was. So it comes back into focus in, in Herculaneum. That's really valuable. Mm. Two more things I'd like to talk about. One of them is this idea of the importance of, as we move toward the future, the mm. importance of restoration mm. along with excavation. Uh, I, again... Um, was one of these people who, when I knew about Herculaneum or when I would, when I would read something in the, in, the, in the newspaper, again, with a, with a focus primarily on let's get those manuscripts out and mm. let's find all these lost manuscripts, there would occasionally be signs that, well, excavation has stopped. And I would say, oh, geez, come on, get your act together, get going. Mm. I mean, mm. what's, what's stopping you people? Um, and you know maybe it's this bloody Italian government; they they can't get mm. their act together. But uh, but I would like more excavation to happen because I know that by no means has the entire site been excavated, and there's so much that that we can discover and we can learn. And I would like to know more. Um, and one of the things that became uh, one of the other things that became very clear in, in in reading reading your book, and of course you've I've only read one of your books, so I will read I will read mm. more going <laughs> forward. But in, in, in Herculaneum, um, mm. uh, past and future, is the importance to responsible excavation and the importance to make sure that one is preserving 
um, the, the, the remains for future generations mm -hmm. and for ourselves, and this idea that once we excavate something, once we dig it up, it becomes so exposed to the elements, and, and we are, from that moment on, seriously jeopardizing its ability to be able to last for future generations, and we have to take that uh, very much into consideration before we even begin. Mm. Um, so this notion of Howard wants you to dig it up because he wants to see where the manuscripts mm. are or wants to see more manuscripts um, has to be tempered with this notion of responsible excavation, restoration, yeah. and preservation. I think it's, it's deeply built into our picture of archaeology, that archaeology is somehow a way of rescuing the past, that you're saving the past by digging it up. Right. And <laughs> you're certainly saving it from oblivion uh, in that you didn't know anything about it until you dug it up. But in terms of its own survival, the best place for archaeological remains to be is where they are underground. Mm. There's nothing that preserves something so well as stable conditions of burial. You don't want the conditions to... To, to change too much, but on the whole, burial produces stability. You think that digging it up, you've saved it. You never dig up something that is capable of standing on its own two feet. You have to intervene at once in order to ensure that it doesn't crumble under your eyes. Right. And so in a very interesting way, the process of excavation is a process of conservation, restoration. You must do something with it. And one of the things we learned, looking in detail at the site of Herculaneum, was that the principal excavator, Amadeo Maiuri, was an absolutely brilliant restorer. A brilliant and, in, by modern standards, somewhat unprincipled restorer. And an extraordinary amount of what looks like a vividly surviving ancient house is Maori's wonderful reconstruction of an ancient house. Mm. Uh, and the, the, the complexity of that relationship between the real um, ancient remains, um, between Reconstruction of what he could be absolutely confident was missing, because it's more of the same, and guesswork or just the most convenient way to preserve it, um, especially at the upper levels, is, is so complex that the trained archaeologist gets their eye in quite rapidly. And you can say, oh yeah, that's Mayuri, that's Rome. <laughs> um, and what we, we reckoned it was something like 50% of the site was built by Maiuri rather than by the Romans. So the moment you realize that excavation goes with very considerable modern intervention, then it becomes the more important to, to understand, to record what is actually uh, Roman. Right. Um, but you've also created a need to continuously sustain those things that you have elaborately rebuilt. Right. And if I've got one message, it is that uh, archaeology is conserva or Archaeology must be 
intimately connected with conservation. And the conservation is archaeology. By doing work to preserve the remains of the past, you actually continuously discover new things about it. But how do we make sure that this is being done? Again, I, I, I read articles in the newspaper. I hear there was something in Le Monde not too long ago. There was Pompeii's falling apart. It's a disaster. It's a shame. How do we make sure on an organizational level, what do we do to make sure that we're doing things better? Because it seems as if we're not doing things. By we, I just mean planet Earth. I, I, I just mm -hmm. don't think we're doing things well enough. Um, I, I know that, you're, uh, that many of your efforts have been supported by the Packard Foundation, uh, the Packard Humanities Institute uh, yeah. out of California. Um, and, and there are many international organizations. There are NGOs who are involved. There's the Italian government that, that's involved. How can we, how can we fix, the, on the organizational front, in terms of money, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of professionalism, how can we fix the situation so that, uh, so that things are better preserved, even if we don't do any more digging at all, yeah. which I, I want to get back to, but even if we don't do any more digging at all, how can we make sure that these sites are preserved and maintained as best as they possibly can be? If you were king of, king of the world and you had the opportunity to organize things in whatever manner you saw fit, subject to the other constraints that we find ourselves on, what would you do differently? Oh, I, what would I do differently? I, <laughs> I would necessarily find myself dismantling and rebuilding the whole system by which antiquities are looked after in Italy. Now, I speak with the most profound respect for my colleagues. Uh, some of my closest friends are the people uh, who are responsible for looking after these sites. Right. But it is through their eyes that I see that they feel themselves trapped in a system with a set of regulations and laws that render what they're trying to do almost impossible to deliver. It is, it's heartbreakingly difficult to do quite simple, necessary things on site. Just for example, one of the principal problems is the set of laws that govern public works. And for absolutely proper reasons, the Italian state has legislated in such a way that you can't spend public money without having open competition sure. for the contracts and that you have some obligation to give the contract to the lowest qualified bidder. But that system has turned into an utter nightmare whereby you get 80 people bidding for a contract. Um, how do the archaeologists responsible for the site distinguish between those building firms that are contaminated by the Camorra, the local mafia, and those which are not? How do you distinguish between those that are honest and those that are corrupt? Right. There are so many opportunities in any building job for making money by not supplying what was specified, but by supplying a cheaper version of what was specified. L'Aquila, the, the, the impact of the earthquake there, yeah. 
um, was made much worse by the fact that student buildings had been constructed with sea sand in the concrete. Sea sand is mm. cheaper than builder's sand mm. and inescapably has got salt in it and leads to collapse of a modern building. And I can um, imagine appalling that... Appalling things happen in, in Italy, not just in Pompeii and Herculaneum, sure. and not just in Italy. Builders take shortcuts sure. everywhere. But presumably when it comes to archaeological sites, it's even, it's even harder to, to have guarantees of sufficient professionalism. It's even, uh, you, you mentioned the sea sand yeah. and, and these various corners. I could imagine that the, the, the potential numbers would multiply by, by orders of magnitude when you're talking about very abstruse, abstract conditions for ensuring preservation that require a high degree of technical sophistication, mm. that it's just the, the difficulties would, would magnify mm. enormously. How can you have the assurance if somebody mm. is trying to cut corners that they are not going to mm. pay sufficient attention to all of these details which require so much refinement and so much awareness? And the answer to that is it's, it's all perfectly possible, as, so as we have demonstrated in Herculaneum. And the great advantage we have there is being a private entity. Private entities are not governed by the, the laws that govern the spending of state money. Right. And a private entity, if you've got the right people, and, and part of the essential recipe has been to have a team of experts in the right disciplines, if you have the right people to select building firms who are looking out for competence, not for the cheapest bid. Sure. Competence and above bubble. If you first draw up high quality specifications for the job, second, select high quality firms, and third, supervise them in detail as they execute the work, it is perfectly possible to do these things well. It's what is so difficult is for the Italian state to, operating under its public works uh, legislation to do that. And the paradox of our project has been the Italian state itself has encouraged a private partner to do what it knows it has tremendous difficulty in delivering. I think one answer is you've got to produce new legislation that is quite specific to the public works of an, on an archaeological site, and specifically Pompeii and Herculaneum. You've got to free up the red tape that makes it so difficult to select the best firms, um, and you've got to concentrate on having the right expertise to draw up the right uh, specifications, to select the right people, and to supervise it. It's perfectly doable. The big challenge for Pompeii at the moment is that with this enormous grant, well, it's not so big as it seems, but 100 million euros does sound like a, a lot of money, specifically to be spent in the course of three years. That's a very tight time frame for changing your system completely mm. and then spending the money well. And we all know and they admit that 
they're going to be very, very hard pressed to spend that money in time and to, to spend it effectively. And this money is under the auspices of the Italian of, government? Uh, it, it comes from the European Union. So it goes, uh, so it's an yeah. intergovernmental. Uh, exactly. Um, and the problem is a problem that will not be solved in three years. Um, I would say it would take a minimum of 20 years of sustained work on the site of, of Pompeii to reverse the enormous decline. But the, uh, the ray of hope comes from the fact that Italy was not always like this. Back in the days of fascism, back in the days of post-war Italy, Amadeo Maiori found it possible to run his site with a group of very skilled workmen um, and do work pretty efficiently. I say pretty efficiently because we do find that sometimes the concrete ceilings he poured are underspecified and badly constructed mm. and so on. So uh, bad things happened even, even then. But on, the but on the whole, if you go back to the early 60s when he, he retired, the sites were in pretty good condition. And it's, it's a very recent phenomenon. Mm. Um, and in some ways, uh, it's a, a litmus of, of a broader malaise in Italian politics for whom we use uh, Berlusconi as, uh, as the symbol. We all know that there are, uh, are problems there. We all know that Italian politics is shot through with corruption. Uh, and, and torn between the reality of corruption and legislation that's trying to control the corruption, but instead of controlling it, actually enables right. it. Um, so at the highest level, there are big political problems to solve in Italy. I can't set about solving the big political problems of Italy. Um, uh, well, I you could if you were really the king. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but but at least I can show what specifically on-site right. it's doing. And the, the, the odd thing is, it's not rocket science, as they say. Right. It's, it's actually remarkably simple. The recipes for ordinary maintenance, for intervention, I, I, I frequently say, get the roofs right and you can save the rest of the site. Leaking roofs cause more problems than anything else. There's also the problem of rising damp as well as damp coming down, but most of the problems of conservation of decorated surfaces start with problems of damp. Sort out the problems of damp. It's, it's not all that difficult. Right. You get the roofs right, you get the drains right, and the damp goes away. And then, then you can send in the people to conserve the wall paintings but so long as the walls are damp, you're wasting your money on conservators. You've got to get the damp problem. Now, those damp problems can be sorted right across Pompeii. So let's suppose we do that. Let's suppose we get, let's, let's indulge me for a moment. We get the roofs right, we get the drains right, we get the, the walls sorted. Let's suppose even, even more happily we have a perpetual flow of funding so that it's not just one large announcement or a series of large mm -hmm. announcements, but there is a sustained series of uh, resources that, 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 uh, that are 
mm -hmm. dedicated to the site to enable it to, to be preserved uh, thereafter. Only, what, half of Herculaneum, a quarter of Herculaneum, as, as best as we can guess, has, has, been, has been fully explored. Um, there are sites in Herculaneum and Pompeii, many sites which obviously people would like to move forwards exploring. On the other hand, there are people who are living in the area, who are living on top of these sites. So in this happy world where we've been able to fix all of our preservation issues up until now, what do we do going forwards? What would you like to be seen done going forwards? Is there, is there a possibility to be doing more excavations? Should we be doing more excavations? What should we do there? Even we, in the course of our conservation project, have been doing excavations in order to drain the ancient shoreline. Right. We had to complete the excavation of the ancient shoreline. It had been dug down to a convenient level, but not deep enough to drain it. We knew that in order to insert a system of drains, we had to complete the excavation, take it down to bedrock, and record it. Only then are you morally entitled to put something on top of it. Right. And in that process of excavation, we found the first example of a wooden roof ever excavated wow. from the Roman world. A wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, so we have been doing new excavation in order to save the site. Right. The site has very ragged edges. Um, on one side, there's a sort of great curve and a, and a wall of tough, a wall of rock. But on the other two sides, it's just stop digging where they stop digging, and you see buildings just disappearing into the edge of the excavations. One reason, one conservation reason for doing more excavation is that it's no good leaving a building sticking half in and half out <laughs> of the side of an excavation. You've got to, you know, make sense. The problem is, if you keep going on that basis, where do you start? You, you have to excavate the whole city. Right. But, but of course, you can find more sensible ways. So tidying up the edge of the site is a remaining big challenge, which has the potential for an enormous amount of discovery. There's also the potential to find new ways of excavating and presenting things to the public. Uh, one possible approach is to go back to the 18th century, to go back to tunneling. They found out so much about the site by mm. tunneling. Mm. Do we have to expose completely to the air, particularly in areas where there are modern houses built on top? Right. Or could one simply enlarge tunnels and instead of backfilling them, right. make them a visitor experience? And the feedback we're getting suggests that it would be a magical visitor experience to be able to go down a tunnel and to see bits of a Roman building still encased uh, in, in, in the rock. So uh, it's, it's worth doing more excavation simply to explore different ways to present to the public to explore and uh, to, to, to excavate and present to the public. So uh, I'm, uh, I, 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 uh, there's no sort of total separation between 
conservation work is this and it's good. And excavation. Uh, excavation right. is that and it's bad. No. To conserve, we must excavate. And the excavation is going to produce new stuff. And so in the case of the Villa of Papyri, and everyone wants to know, will there be more excavation at the Villa of Papyri? Absolutely the first priority has to be to clean up the trench that's already been created. A big campaign uh, was done just four or five years ago, and that revealed all sorts of things that had been missed in the, in the very rough and ready excavation done with bulldozers um, mm. in, in, back in the 90s. Um, and for instance, these wonderful decorated ivory plaques were found. Yeah. So glorious new finds uh, come out. The lower levels of the atrium of the Villa of the Papyri um, are sitting right there, accessible for excavation. And there's a very strong reason for excavating them, which is that currently water, which passes through the rock at all sorts of levels, is visibly cascading through the lower levels of the building. So there is some urgency to tidy up excavations right. there. So I actually strongly favor uh, extending the excavations in the Villa of the Papari area but not in order to find more papyri. That, that seems to me very dangerous indeed, because you don't know where you're going to find more papyri, you don't know if you're going to find more papyri. Let's excavate what needs to be excavated in order, in to, order preserve. to preserve it. Right. You might be rewarded by more papyri. But you will be or rewarded. Or there might be wax ta wooden tablets, or it might be little ivory plaques. We cannot tell what treasures will come out, but nobody is yet excavated on this site without exposing treasures. And one of the things we'll know for certain, if we do it right, is that we will have enhanced the opportunity to preserve the site, yeah. which, is, yeah. which is the whole point. Yeah. So uh, I think there is enormous scope for um, further archaeological work um, of a responsible sort that starts from the premise that archaeology and conservation must be interlocked in order to work. Well, thank you very much. Before I let you go, I'd like to ask one final question, which is, is there anything that we have failed to talk about, we've failed to touch on, that you think should be communicated, deserves to be communicated to people uh, with respect to any of these issues? Or have I talked too dry? My, is that right? <laughs> can, we, can we talk a bit more about the Packard Humanities Institute? Sure. What has been the importance of the Packard Foundation uh, yeah. on your work? Uh, it, it w w first, this project wouldn't have happened without the, the Packard Humanities Institute. Um, well, the, the funding has been absolutely essential, but the importance goes far, far beyond funding. Um, it's a very unusual kind of institute because uh, David Packard himself takes such an intense personal interest in his projects. One of his principles has been he will do a few projects and do them really seriously, right. invest real money in them, follow them with real interest. And his own personal contribution and interest has has been of fundamental importance. He's a historian, he's frequently, is he not? He, well, he's a classicist. Yeah. He, he has frequently visited the site. His observations on what the priorities should be 
drive the, uh, the project. Um, for instance, he is deeply concerned uh, that the visitor should be able to see the artifacts recovered from the site. He rightly understands that what you see in the museum in Naples is an integral part of your picture right. of, of Roman houses. Right. And he's been very insistent throughout the project. We've got to get a site museum up and running. And for a number of years, we explored the possibilities of there actually is the physical building of a site museum. And uh, it has never been open to the public really? because it was so badly constructed <laughs> that it has never had approval to be opened. <laughs> uh, and we looked very seriously into could we make this building work? Right. So can you? And <laughs> the answer is no. It's <laughs> such a series of disasters. <laughs> I could <laughs> keep you here for another hour telling you about the disasters of that particular building. And, and David reached the conclusion, it is better to start afresh. And he has a vision of a museum that is also um, the visitor centre, the offices, the, the conservation centre, all the functions that you need on site, integrated. And it could be enormously important for the site, not just to give back the objects to the visitors, you know, all these wonderful domestic uh, artifacts that without which you can't understand a bedroom without understanding right. the things that come from a bedroom. Right. Um, but not only does it give the visitor back a missing part of their experience, but it makes the future financial viability of the site much more deliverable. If you have, if you route every visitor through a building, which is also a museum, which is also a restaurant, which is also a gift shop, this is a recipe that has been proved a million times in the States. Right. Uh, of course it could work. Right. And not, uh, just, and not just in the States, but, but I, I would say that there, uh, just off the top of my head, there are two aspects of this. One is that many of the people who are giving, who, who are taking the time, the people who are taking the time to go to Herculaneum and to, and to go to Pompeii and so forth, these people are, are, are already willing to support future ventures. They're not doing this begrudgingly. They're, they're, they will be so impressed, they are so impressed by what it is that they're seeing that they're looking for mechanisms by which they can contribute to the future, um, the, the future preservation and uh, efforts of, mm. uh, uh, of the site. I'm sure you're right, because people often say to me, how can we help? Right, how can we help and more? One of the biggest obstacles to people helping is no one wants to pour money down a black hole. Sure. If you know that something dreadful is going to be done with right. it, and, and sure. uh, if, you, if you despair of the capacity of Italy to look after its own heritage, why should you contribute? Right. The real act of courage by the Pacartimantis Institute is confronted with clear evidence of maladministration and failure to look after the site. They have invested the money in making it a site that can be looked after. Because they're trying a different way. I mean, they're trying yeah. a, the whole mechanism yeah. to, to actually save something. They're yeah. not obviously looking at transferring all of their resources to the Italian government and getting out of the way. They're yeah. looking at doing something 
in parallel to Absolutely. what it is. And, and therefore, there is a very distinctive American approach that is uh, underlying all this. Uh, the institution that delivers this project is a British institution, the British School at Rome, which, which I was director of. Um, and in many ways, of course, uh, we see things incredibly closely to how America sees things. But nevertheless, the initiative, the new ideas typically come from the States, and, and California is a great place for new ideas to come from. So I, I think that, uh, that this um, private intervention is not filling up a hole in the funding. It's providing funding that uh, can be spent flexibly because not un, uh, in the straitjacket of Italian public spending, and funding that comes with a richness of ideas for the future potential of the site that really is transforming it. Notwithstanding the way that they, they pronounce tough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's just tough. <laughs> Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, Hard. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with David Canadine, Michael Gordon, Margaret Jacob, and Theo Ruiz. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.